Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful signs into your brain. I'm Rabia Khan. On this edition, we've got smallpox cured by evidence-based medicine. But first up, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. More emissions cuts are needed to combat rising greenhouse gases. Greenhouse gas emissions might need to be cut further and faster to prevent massive sea level rises. The IPCC published a report on global warming in February this year, predicting a sea level rise of 18 to 59 centimetres by the year 2100. IPCC chairman Dr. Rajendra Pajuri has stated that the upper estimate must now be scrapped. This is because it does not include melting land ice in Greenland and West Antarctica. The current estimate predicts that millions of people in low-lying delta areas would be affected and several small island nations would be threatened. If land ice in Greenland and West Antarctica is lost, it could be even worse. The Bali talks on climate change will try to develop a two-year roadmap of negotiations to speed up emissions cuts. The talks are due to start next week. More news in Antarctica. A new unmanned observatory is being set up on the icy continent. The observatory will see 10 times further into deep space than any other land-based telescope. It will also produce pictures that are four times sharper than any previously achieved. Other instruments with the telescope will measure sky emissions, air turbulence, wind speed, weather temperatures, and even the darkness of the sky. The observatory was built at Australia's University of New South Wales and will carry Chinese and American telescopes. Antarctica was chosen because the air is dry and still, Perfect conditions for the telescopes, according to Dr John Lawrence of the University of New South Wales. Air turbulence causes the twinkling effect we see in stars, so less twinkling will mean better pictures. During the winter, the observatory will be powered by six diesel engines, but during the summer, it will be powered by six solar panels. And now to a new take on an old diffusion story. Stem cells with viruses, not embryos. Skin cells that can be turned into stem cells by using gene switches and viruses might have their own problems. A skin-to-stem cell discovery was made independently by two research teams, one from Japan and one from the US. They expose human skin cells to transcription factors, which act as gene switches, to revert the skin cells to a type of cell resembling embryonic stem cells. They then added genes by infecting the cells with retroviruses. The retroviruses incorporate genes into DNA, turning them into brain, heart and other tissue cells. But retroviruses can also cause cancer, so this technology cannot be used in patients yet. Another way of creating these cells without retroviruses is needed before it can be used on patients, according to Shinya Yamanaka, leader of the Japanese team, and Bob Lanza of the Advanced Cell Technologies in Massachusetts, US. The skin-to-stem cell discovery excited the scientific world because it didn't require using human eggs or embryos. This means if developed properly, it could be an ethical alternative for researching and treating diseases. And finally, the largest sea scorpion to have lived has been discovered. 
The sea scorpion would have been about 2.5 metres long and would have lived 390 million years ago, making it older than the dinosaurs. Only one fossilised claw of the animal was found. The size of the animal was calculated by Simon Brady and his team of researchers from the University of Bristol, the UK. They did this by measuring the size of the claw and comparing it to the bodies of other remaining sea scorpion fossils. Some paleontologists believe the species, called Jackalopteris renaniae, would have used its claw to grab prey, such as passing fish. It would have been a top predator of its time. Sea scorpions are arthropods. Arthropods have segmented bodies and exoskeletons and include many other animals, such as spiders, insects and crabs, as well as the scorpions. Scientists are unsure whether modern scorpions descended from the giant sea scorpion. It's possible the species was an evolutionary dead end. The mystery still remains over how it got so big. Some scientists believe that it was because there were large amounts of oxygen in the atmosphere at the time, but Simon Brady believes evolving into a bigger body would be a bigger advantage over competitors. Thanks, Patrick, for the news. And now to evidence-based medicine, which has been heralded as one of the greatest medical breakthroughs of all time. It involves using scientific principles to make medical decisions. But do you science lovers know what it's all about? Aaron Pasmo introduces you to the world of evidence-based medicine. God Sarah and Tom are the proud parents of a healthy two-month-old baby boy. As their first child, and like most parents, they have many questions about how to care for their baby. How do you feed him? What do you do when he cries? And how do you put him to sleep? To answer these questions, they consult the best-selling book Baby and Child Care by Dr Benjamin Spock. Dr Spock's book was first published in 1946, and since then, it has sold over 50 million copies. This makes it one of the 10 highest-selling non-fiction books of all time. For putting your baby to sleep, Dr. Spock advises that it is safer and more comfortable to put babies to sleep lying on their tummies. He advises against putting babies to sleep on their backs because they might choke on their vomit. Based on this expert advice, Sarah and Tom put their baby to sleep on his front. Little did they know that this choice could kill their baby. Dr. Spock's advice that babies should sleep on their stomachs was extremely influential. Through to the 1990s, there was almost unanimous support for Dr. Spock's view. After all, he was an expert in the field with extensive experience. And what's more, what he was saying about lying babies on their tummies made good sense. But from the 1950s onward, there seemed to be a pattern that babies sleeping on their front were at higher risk of SIDS. That's Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or COT death, and it's the sudden death of an otherwise healthy baby for no apparent reason. Investigations of SIDS deaths were showing that up to three-quarters of babies who died of SIDS were found lying on their tummy. So from the 1970s onward, there was substantial evidence of the dangers of lying babies on their tummy. But it wasn't until the 1990s that public campaigns started to discourage parents from sleeping their babies on their front. And when these campaigns started... SIDS deaths dropped by 70%. Had we taken notice of the evidence earlier, it would have been clear that Dr Spock's expert advice was wrong 
and hundreds of thousands of deaths could have been prevented. This is just one case that demonstrates how standard practice can sometimes be in conflict with the scientific facts. And what this study shows is that it's really important that we use scientific evidence to inform our healthcare decisions. This principle that healthcare should be based on the best available scientific evidence is what is known as evidence-based medicine, and it's taking over healthcare as we know it. This year, the British Medical Journal named evidence-based medicine as one of its 15 medical milestones. This puts evidence-based medicine alongside the likes of penicillin and the contraceptive pill as one of the biggest medical breakthroughs in history. Compared to these other medical milestones, evidence-based medicine is quite new. It's only been mentioned in medical journals in the last 15 years. And it's only been taught to medical students for the last 10 but support for evidence-based medicine has grown so rapidly that now all doctors are expected to use evidence in patient care. What's important about evidence-based medicine is that it tries to derive some meaning from the stacks of information and research that is available about different healthcare practices. To make sense of all the evidence, some types of evidence are considered stronger or better than others. The least valuable type of evidence is the opinions of medical experts. Now most of us trust our doctor's opinion, just like millions of parents and health professionals trusted the opinions of Dr Spock. But according to the principles of evidence-based medicine, all expert opinion must be backed up by sound scientific evidence. The very best scientific evidence comes from what we call randomised control trials. I'll explain briefly what this means. To test if a treatment works, you need to use it in the real world, on real patients. And you need to compare the people using this treatment to another group that aren't using it. This control group receives a different treatment, or they receive a placebo, that's a fake or dummy treatment. To make the trial fair, people must be randomly allocated to the two groups. This is done by a computer to ensure that there's no differences between the two groups. Next, you follow the patients in both groups to see what happens to them. The follow-up period might be for days or it might be for years, depending on the outcomes that you're interested in. Now, we've already heard about how scientific evidence can sometimes contradict expert opinion. Similarly, sometimes the results of randomised trials can show that other, less rigorous scientific studies were wrong. For example, in the past women were given hormone replacement therapy for the prevention of heart disease. This was based on observational studies that found that women who took hormone replacement therapy had lower rates of heart disease. However, a landmark randomised control trial was conducted where women received either hormone therapy or a placebo, a sugar pill that did nothing at all. And this study demonstrated that hormone replacement therapy did not reduce the rate of heart disease, and what's more, it actually increased the risk of stroke. As a result, hormone replacement therapy is no longer recommended for heart disease because it does more harm than good. So, if evidence-based medicine is the way of the future, where to from here? Evidence-based medicine faces three main challenges. Firstly, we need more scientific studies to evaluate different treatments. 
Very few of the treatments that we use today have been rigorously tested. It's only the new ones that get tested, and the established ones weren't necessarily tested so rigorously when they started. Secondly, we need to get health professionals to start applying the evidence in their day-to-day work. In the US, they've estimated that half of patients don't get best evidence care. And worse still, one in ten patients get care which is potentially harmful. Clearly, we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that health professionals are using the evidence. And finally, we need to look at the evidence to evaluate whether evidence-based medicine really works. Paradoxically, even though doctors are being trained to look at the evidence and apply it in practice, we don't know if doing this actually improves patient outcomes. There's a chance that evidence-based medicine may not be any more effective overall and that the old approach of relying on clinical experience is just as good. So that's the lowdown on evidence-based medicine. Considering it's such a new way of providing healthcare, it may not have earned its medical milestone status just yet, but it's certainly got of a lot of potential. Let's just wait for the evidence to see if it actually works. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now we have John August, who's going to look at a disease from history, smallpox. This week, John looks at the microbe, the disease, vaccination, and the days before vaccination. Smallpox is a virus, but it's known by the term pox because of the pustules it generates. It's called small to distinguish it from the big pox, syphilis. But syphilis is a bacteria, which you can treat with antibiotics. But being a virus, smallpox cannot be treated with antibiotics. If we had an outbreak today, many think it would be effectively untreatable. The US government, concerned about the possibilities of germ warfare, are stockpiling smallpox vaccines. But why is smallpox so potent? Well, partially, while it's a virus, its DNA contains more information than some bacteria. Viruses reproduce by taking over other cells. But for all that we might get concerned about them causing infections, they normally infect only specific types of cell. Smallpox, however, can infect many different types of cell. Skin cells are particularly prone to infection because the skin is in fact the largest organ in the body. It receives the greatest blood supply, and the virus generates a protein similar to the one which causes skin growth, hence the pustules. Because smallpox can infect many different types of cell, some speculate that the transition from prokaryotic cells, that is cells with a single DNA loop, to eukaryotic cells, that is cells with a nucleus, involve the adoption of a pox virus by a prokaryotic cell. This means smallpox virus has inherited the hacker's back door to the cell and can more easily breach its defences. But the same smallpox virus can cause different infections in the same human being. At its mildest, through the nasal passengers or perhaps through cuts in the skin and deliberately introduced, it was half a percent to two percent fatal. But why deliberately introduce it? Because the disease was normally about 20 to 30 percent fatal. Even so, the only disease which is 100 percent fatal without treatment is rabies, and even Ebola passed by contact is about 50 percent fatal. But the same virus could also develop two different forms of the disease, normal smallpox and hemorrhagic smallpox. Ordinary smallpox involves the normal cold symptoms, and its attack on the skin cells causes pustules, which eventually dry out. 
In a more severe form, confluent ordinary smallpox, the pustules form together into sheets which begin to to detach the outside layers of skin from the underlying flesh. However, the most lethal form is hemorrhagic smallpox, with an entirely different set of symptoms. The skin does not blister, but rather bleeding occurs under the skin and the skin looks black. It was called the black pox. Bleeding also occurs in the internal organs and the eyes change colour, going from red to finally black. Same virus, but so many different outcomes. Why? Well, if the patient survives long enough, they normally generate an an antibody response, which halts a progression of the disease. Once the pustules form, if there's no antibody response, the number of pustules increase till we have confluent smallpox, and the patient dies from the damage to the skin. But if the immune system response can be marshaled before the pustules join together, then no more pustules will form, and the patient has a much greater chance of survival. So what we have are two crucial thresholds. We need enough of the virus to start the search for an immune response, but if the virus multiplies too much, it kills the patient. This is why variolation can be effective. There are a small number of viral particles to start with, and they have a limited base to operate from. They might infect the nasal passengers, but then they need to jump organs to elsewhere. We increase the time between triggering the immune system and the virus overwhelming the patient. But variolation is about 2% fatal. Some patients' immune system may not respond sufficiently rapidly, even with the extended exposure time, and for them the disease will be fatal. But when we have hemorrhagic smallpox, the smallpox infects internal organs, and we do have spots on the skin, but not the usual pustules. In infecting internal organs, the virus attacks the liver, Between internal inflammatory damage and the change in blood clotting from liver attacks, the infection is now much more deadly. Perhaps with normal smallpox, internal organs are infected, but not enough to change blood chemistry or generate inflammation. Smallpox varied in virulence. Some strains were more likely to cause hemorrhagic smallpox. There were two different main strains, major and minor variola. There is still a much weaker strain of smallpox in the world today, which causes a much less fatal disease, alastrim, which is itself about 1% fatal. If we go all the way to minor infections which are not lethal, we end up with the cowpox virus, which has enough antigens in common with smallpox so that exposure to cowpox makes us immune to smallpox. This is immunisation, where the infection that generates the immunity is much, much less virulent than the disease itself. Immunisation was discovered by Edward Jenner, who had been apprenticed to Dr Ludlow in Sodbury from the age of 13. He observed that people who caught cowpox while working with cows did not catch smallpox. He suspected a connection, and over time, more evidence built up for that connection. In 1796, Sarah Nelms, a local milkmaid, contracted cowpox and went to Jenner for treatment, and Jenner tested his theory. He inoculated James Phipps, the eight-year-old son of his gardener, with cowpox. After a weak bout of cowpox, James recovered. Jenner then tried to infect James with smallpox, but nothing happened. He was immune. Jenner reported his observations to the Royal Society. He published a series of 23 cases, including his son Edward. None suffered severely from smallpox. Thanks, John, for the gruesome history of smallpox. Next time, John will go into the history of the epidemic of smallpox. Everything is good for you if it doesn't kill you. And now, a panel discussion on this week's exciting science stories. And on the panel, we have Linda Wang, Joanne Chang, Patrick Ruby, John August, Ian Wolfe. 
I have to say, John, it sounded pretty rough earlier on in your feature when you were talking about was the gardener's son who was infected with the cowpox. Yes, that's right. Jenna tried it out on the gardener's son first, and then some t- stage later when he was confident, he then tried it out on his own son. But so hold on, he got somebody else's son, servant's son, and then he infected him with cowpox. He was sick for a week, and then he infected him deliberately with a then-fatal illness of smallpox. Only 20 to 30% fatal, depends on the circumstances. It's not the sort of thing you'd get away with now, though. I mean, looking at our feature on uh, evidence-based medicine before, when you're performing clinical trials researching new drugs and, and stuff like that, you wouldn't get away with this sort of experiment now. You, you can't actually do anything which has a possible detrimental effect on your actual patient. It was a different, different world back then. When you're looking at the evidence-based medicine approach now using placebo, the funny thing is you actually see an effect with placebo. I mean, we've all heard of the placebo effect, and people still to this day don't know quite what it is that causes the placebo effect. But if you give someone... Well, that you know, be- begs the question of why aren't we researching the placebo effect so we can make better use of it as a general treatment for lots of different illnesses? But that seems to have passed by the, by the side. Was, wasn't there anything that anything that's been done on the research in the placebo effect recently? I think I read somewhere that someone did look at um, researching what the placebo effect versus no effect, not giving anything. And I think it was a group of people, the control group, didn't really have, didn't really know they were part of a study, and they found that uh, the placebo effect did have a beneficial influence. And I think there are a lot of studies in Asia and South America where people are given saline solution injections or um, placebo pills by doctors and told they're antibiotics, and these patients get better. So how do you control when you're testing a placebo effect? I think if you don't tell the person, I guess, that they're being given something, just tell them you're getting M&Ms instead of pills. If you tell them it's a placebo, it's is, would that be the control? I think if you tell them you're not actually in a study, I think that would be the control and you tell them you don't actually be given any sort of medicine. I think when people feel like they've been given a medicine, they're more likely the psychological or the reasoning behind. Perhaps they're actually they're told that they're a control group, that they're not treating at all, mm. just to see how the disease progresses. Of course, they probably wouldn't be so keen to be part of such a group, <laughs> but you know that would be one way, of, one, one way of testing. I think it would be more interesting to see how people react if they say this drug would make your symptoms worse compared to someone who's been given placebo and have two different points of view. So one would, would be given a medication saying this would improve your health and another one would be giving a medication saying this would, you know, make you have worsen your symptoms. So Why may- would you take a drug like that? I don't know. Is you it, might is- get paid. Yes, you get yeah, bribed. Yeah, <laughs> is that ethical, though, to lie to your patients about it? Uh, it's ethical to lie to your patients, but is it ethical to lie to the detriment? Mm, interesting idea. Hang on. Ethical to lie to the, your patients? What do you mean? Well, if you give someone a sugar pill and you tell them it's a real medicine and they get better, then it's a good lie because they get better. If you give them a sugar pill and you tell them it's going to make them worse and it does make them worse, then you've lied and you've made them worse. It's sort of your null hypothesis for this would be that, or the psychological state of your patient that has an effect on the illness itself. Maybe your mood is actually masking the feeling. So if you have a positive mood, you don't feel 
the bad sensations from an illness as much. When you're in a negative mood, perhaps you feel it more intensely. Maybe it's a distraction. When you're looking at something like pain, as an example, a lot of pain is actually psychological. It's actually determined in your brain as opposed to in your nerves. So you have nerves which actually send the signal of pain from an area which gets injured. Say perhaps you put your hand on a hot stove and you get burnt. There will be nerves in your hand which send the signal to your brain, but most of what makes up that sensation is actually made in your brain. It's very subjective and it, it, it does change from person to person as to how intense that feeling will be. There's a therapy based on this in Australia where the signals that are processed in your brain, your brain has a limited amount of ability to process. So what they do is they overwhelm your brain with sensory stimulation. Highly immersive computer video game where it's so engaging you're basically putting on goggles and it's 3D and it takes all of your attention. This is for burns victims. You don't feel the pain because you're so immersed in the game, your brain doesn't have any processing power left over to process the pain signals. Some injuries, some some pain, some, some things where you don't get much of a reaction. And there are some that work really well. There are a whole range of skin diseases that respond really strongly to placebo. And there are other classes of illnesses that have no... Yeah. Do you think optimistic mindset might make a difference? Because I read somewhere that some people live a longer life because they're op- optimistic. So maybe when people get placebos, they think positive. They think, oh, this medication is going to work on me. So I'm going to get well. And as a result, they do get well. So let's try for the evidence. Let's all be optimistic and see if we live forever. And on the panel, we have Linda Wang, Joanne Chang, Patrick Ruby, John August and Ian Wolfe. That's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Thanks, Rabia. And remember to subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Rabi Ahan, Erin Passmore, John August, Patrick Ruby, Joanne Chang, and Linda Wang. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and produced in the Sydney Tower of Power at 2SCR. I'm your producer, Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your evidence-based collector of choice for more science wonderings next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Everything is good for you. It's good for you